Endless Hustle presented by Doc Swinson's, the legendary whiskey blenders from Ferndale, Washington. I absolutely love Doc Swinson's, and if you haven't tried it, go to their website and check out their selection. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? All right, Endless Hustlers, we are back with another grand spanking new episode. It is your fearless host, Arthur Cade, Pro Bible's Endless Hustle, episode 111, and we have an incredible triple header ahead. We have a legend of stage and screen who also has a new book out, Alan Cumming. Of course, Alan is a favorite on television and a former X-Men. He was Nightcrawler, so that was cool to talk to him all about that gig. Just brilliant, brilliant actor. Then we're joined by one of my favorite bands of the last several years. And they had a song that I think I play a million times every time I'm at the gym, Walk the Moon. Of course, that song is Shut Up and Dance. They are back with a brand new album. And then finally, we're finishing it up with a guy that I'm an enormous fan of who has created this movie trivia movement called Schmodown, the movie trivia Schmodown. And he has this unbelievable live event happening in Los Angeles, December 4th. And he talks all about the details and you can go to his website to check it all out. But it's Christian Harloff, the founder of the movie trivia Schmodown. You guys got to check out the movie trivia Schmodown. It's incredible to see this almost WWE meets movie trivia universe that this guy has created. Huge, huge fans. So I think you guys are going to love the show. Let's kick it off with the one, the only, Alan Cumming. All right, we've got a great day on The Endless Hustle as we've got the incredibly talented and best-selling author, Alan Cumming, joining us. Alan, congratulations on the new book. It's called Baggage. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Nice so to be talking fascinating. to you. I'm a therapy nut. And as someone who had daddy issues his whole life growing up and figured out my daddy issues when I was 27, there's a great moment in this book where right around the same age, you began to have this catharsis of realizing some of the regressive behaviors that you had dealt with. And I loved reading about this. It was so honest, raw, and authentic. Just being able to put this all out into the world, and obviously because you're a public figure, people are going to really take a lot from it. How incredible is it to be able to share these stories with people? You know, it's really great. And that's actually, I talk about this in the book. That I, I, the first memoir I did was called Not My Father's Son, which dealt much more with all that kind of, you know, the abuse I went through with my dad and as a child and some more crazy stuff when he came back into my life as an adult. I I realized when you do that, when you are authentic and frank and talk about your life, you realize how rare that is and how hungry people are to hear that. And it's sort of reassuring for people, I think, to sort of hear someone well-known and seemingly successful and got it together, being honest about the stuff that they've suffered. So this book in a way is, is was also to say, you know, yeah, I, I, I have made that, um, I have got over some of that, but it's, it's never gone away. It's always still going to be there, that kind of trauma. I mean, everyone's got trauma. Everyone's got stuff from their past. And you don't ever, it's, you mustn't deny it. I think you just have to manage it. And that's, this book's really showing how I managed and how I sort of didn't manage so well sometimes. I kind of, you know, I think I'm, this book, I realized that I, what I'm doing is normalizing being a hot mess. 
That's the name of the next book. Normalizing being a hot mess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you've, had such a you've had such a fascinating career and it's taken on so many different evolutions and so many forms. The first time I remember being aware of you was GoldenEye. I'm a huge James Bond guy. And I just, I loved GoldenEye. I loved Pierce Brosnan, although Daniel Craig has since become my favorite Bond. But you write about how GoldenEye essentially saved your life. You were going through this really shitty and rough period. You're kind of like, what's happening here? And then you end up getting this role and it essentially evolves you into the next step of your life. Talk to me about that. Well, it's, what I mean by the... I, when I auditioned for it, it was really at the the lowest sort of time of my life. I was, um, as you said, I had I had all these. I remembered all these things from my childhood. I was trying to have a child myself with my then wife, and I think because of that, my body sort of said, "Hey, yes, there's some things about fatherhood you need to deal with here," and so I sort of actually remembered all these things, horrible sort of incidents, and had to. You know that kind of sent me reeling and i was just in a real state kind of wondering why that had happened to me and what i was going to do with all that and you know just it's really shocking when that happens just to be sort of given this onslaught of memories that are not pleasant at all and so in the midst of all that i was sort of dealing with my marriage breaking up and having this breakdown in the midst of all that i got this audition for james bond and i it was like one of the worst days of my life, actually. And I went to the audition and kind of switched off from what was going on in my life, completely sort of compartmentalized it, went into the room, finished, did the interview, finished it, and then kind of completely, I don't remember what happened for the next seven or eight hours. I just, just sort of in a, almost like a sober blackout. And anyway, I got that job and it just sort of started to sort of turn in my life. Uh, you know, it's a huge thing for me to get such a big movie and and it just sort of brought me back to working again. And, you know, I went and talked I, it, before I started the movie, I went with my brother and confronted my dad and talked to him about the stuff that had happened. And so that was a really positive turning point in my you know sort of journey back. So by the time I came to do the film and actually I saw a picture this morning of me um, at the premiere with Judy Dench because we were. Uh, by the time I got to that, I was actually really happy and, and sort of, you know, had my life back together. But I was with Judy Dench and we'd had all these instructions sent to us about um, the etiquette for, you know, how to meet Prince Charles at the royal wedding. And my, what I thought was hilarious, it said that men must bow from the neck forward. And I thought, well, you're hardly going to bow from the neck back. And so there's a picture, there was a video on the, on the news, it was me and Judy Dench kind of jerking our heads back like that, trying to see what it was like to bow from the neck backwards. And we were caught on camera doing it. We looked insane. <laughs> I think it's insane that they send you educational videos on how to greet the royal couples. It's incredible. And it was like, it was like, it was these letters, it was facts, of course, it was so long ago. And the, the curtsy was like this elaborate two page thing of how you curtsy and when you put your leg down and all that. I mean, it was like, come on. Are you like, what the fuck did I get into here? Like, do I really have to deal with this shit? <laughs> totally. I was like, I'm not bowing. So I said, Hello, I'm Alan. And when I met him. So I live in the West Village in Manhattan. You're a New York icon. You're a staple here. Club Coming was being written about like on page six every three days. I loved it. How did this Club Coming thing start? And how do I get an invite one of these days? Oh, well, first of all, you, everybody's welcome all the time. You know, it's not a, it's not like a red 
red um, velvet ropes sort of place. It's just you know, everyone can come and there's the different sort of shows, types of shows every night. Look on the website and see what takes your fancy. Um, and there's one-off shows all the time. But um, it came about because it started off in my dressing room when I was doing cabaret the second time. I did it again. I did it in 98 and then I did it again in 2014, 2015. And I was also shooting The Good Wife at the same time then, um, kind of accidentally. I thought, the, I thought The Good Wife wasn't going to happen and so I took this other job. And then I was doing both an eight show a week on Broadway and a TV series. And I just sort of thought, well, how am I going to have any fun? Um, and so I brought the party to me. I made my dressing room a sort of a, it was, became known as Club Coming. Because every night, and I, oh, I know, Campari America, which is an umbrella group of lots of different alcohols, they uh, said they would sponsor my bar in my dressing room, my, an entire full bar in my dressing room for a year. And I had a little sort of bat phone, and I'd go, we're running low on vodka. And so like boxes of vodka would arrive downstairs at the stage door. And um, I just, so that became a sort of thing. And we got a sign made saying club coming and people would drop by afterwards and all the cast would come. And it became this sort of talked about bar in New York City. People would go to the box office and ask for tickets to the show and also two tickets to club coming. And people were like, you know, it's just his dressing room. You can't go uh, <laughs> unless you know him. And so then I, after that, I would do... I would DJ and everything and sort of occasionally we'd have somebody would sing or something, but it was just more a sort of party. And then afterwards of that, I did a few pop up things here and there to uh, just see my friends, really. And then I sort of did it after my concerts. I would do a club coming party where I would DJ and the band would be on stage playing along and people would come up and it, that started the sort of performative part of it. And then I just a bar became one of my favorite bars in New York City, Eastern Block became available and my friend and I just sort of thought we would take the idea of club coming, make it into a performance space bar and it all happened. And now it's this really booming, lovely place where we have so many great performers, a lot, you know, loads and loads of young performers and comedians and all sorts of people come by. And, and we've also got crazy things. I've like got a live, live drawing class on a Sunday and we've got a crafting thing on a Tuesday. And then there's always dancing later on and fun. I was there last night, actually, far too late after my lunch party. I love how after a, uh, doing a show, you turned your dressing room into a club. That's just like legendary shit, Alan. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of people say that says a lot about you, that most people would be so concerned about their voice and you were more concerned about how you're going to have fun. Who were some of the crazy people trying to get invites when it was still just in your dressing room? Did you have like A-listers trying to get in there? Um, well, yes, people would sort of call and say, could they drop by? I mean, if people came to the show, obviously, they, uh, they could come up. But I remember like Je uh, Vanessa Hudson, she was doing a show nearby and she used to drop by sometimes. You know, she was actually in Gigi at the time. And I've got a picture, I think from the last night of the run of Vanessa and all of our, all these boys and myself including with her tops off. I don't know quite what was going on. I think it was just the sweaty night we're dancing. <laughs> Obviously, you mentioned The Good Wife. That ends up becoming just a monster hit. You know, Juliana's coming off ER. That then launches her into a, another stratosphere. She's also got a book out right now talking about that incredible thing. But that also was a huge launch pad, too, because you literally were getting nominated for every single award. You won a bunch. So when you hit that kind of primetime fame and that kind of just like, all right, shit's really happening now, what's it like as that's happening? Um. 
Well, it started weird being on TV because I hadn't done it very much. I hadn't done a long running thing. So I didn't know the kind of, you know, if you're in a film or something, it's sort of people see it at different times. But when you're on network TV, everyone sees it all at once. So there's this sort of, you go out into the world, onto the streets, and you really feel the reaction to what, what you've just shot. Uh, and it's also quite a quick turnaround on television. You know, there's not that long really before it actually is finished on TV. So it was a really different, it's a different kind of fame, TV fame. It's very different. People are much more kind of, they feel, I think in a way because, in, you know, when, when you do a movie, you, people go to the movie theatre to see you. I guess less so now actually because people watch so much at home. But with, with, with television, especially on network uh, televisions, you're coming into their home. So you're like a visitor to them, really. And so I think people feel this different uh, ownership of you in a way. So it was it was kind of a lot to realize that and to sort of think, oh, this is a different, I'm moving into a different phase about how people, and also a character like Eli, the one I did, people really responded to him and really felt they could talk to him and uh, and to me. So I, I, yeah, my my life became much more active on the streets when I was doing The Good Wife. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Anytime you play a character that people just connect to, like the Sopranos have to deal with this for the rest of their life. I'm sure Brian Cranston with Walter White, although he's gone on to more, just a million iconic other projects. But yeah. people will see you as Eli. I'm sure like you're at the supermarket and they're not like Alan. They're like, Eli, you know, it's like, it's got to be so crazy sometimes. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's weird when you are at, you know, like people... I get it. People call me lots of different names for lots of different characters over the years. And, but sometimes when I, I think it's really weird when you're at an event, like say I'm at, I'm at a, a gala or something and I'm being introduced to people and I'm, ho you know, I'm being honored or I'm hosting or I'm attending this gala and I, and I, and people go, and this is Alan and they go, hello, Eli. <laughs> and I go, uh, it's Alan, but, uh, thanks. <laughs> kind of. I think it's really weird. People are sort of, they almost can't handle that it's, you're a person separate from that character. You obviously did X-Men, you were Nightcrawler, and that was like the beginning of what we're seeing now. Obviously now, every actor on the planet's fighting to be in one of the Marvel movies and the Avengers movies, and you know, Marvel and DC can't make these movies fast enough. It's, if they have a spinoff, they're now already onto the next 10 spinoffs, it's incredible. But when you guys did X-Men, it still hadn't quite exploded to the degree that I feel like it's exploded to at this point. Was that like an easy decision? Because it wasn't as cool back then to be a superhero as it is necessarily now. Were you like, absolutely, let me do X-Men? Or was was there some hesitancy to try to, to do a superhero movie? Um, there was hesitancy because I didn't really understand it. And it was so, I mean, there wasn't, as you say, there wasn't sort of a template for for doing those kind of films. And also I didn't, I didn't really know anything about comic books and, and stuff like that. So it seemed like so weird and alien to me. And I knew the first film had been a huge hit. And, uh, you know, I just, I really, yeah, I kind of just jumped in. It was one of these ones where I, I kind of didn't really have any idea what I was doing. I just thought, thought this sounds good and nice people. Uh, and just, you know, I went off and did it. And, um, but I was doing a play actually in, in New York. I was playing the Pope in this crazy Jean Genet play where I had to, do all sorts of weird stuff, like have a poop on stage as the Pope, and it was mental. I was just doing this crazy, and I, the thing was that the Pope was, 
he didn't because he was only ever photographed from the front. They didn't bother to do his back. So I had I was bare at the back. I was on roller skates in this big Pope dress, and it was just nuts. So I was doing that, and I was offered the, the X Men film. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't do this. My agents are like, what? <laughs> You're getting paid like twenty dollars a week to do this crazy play. Uh, you can't turn this down. And I was like, well, I can't. I've committed to this thing. I don't. I want to do it, you know. And so, so they made this compromise that I think we did a, a shorter run of the play, and and then I went a little later to to Vancouver. But it was. Uh, I. I mean, I, I. I. It was good to get to do both, but I actually probably had more fun on the play than I did in the as a superhero. I'm literally imagining the trailer conversations with like Hugh Jackman and Halle Berry, like, oh, so what'd you do last? And you know, I played, I played a, a naked Pope on roller skates. <laughs> yes, I won that competition, definitely. <laughs> you know, you you just eating lots of chickens. That's what I always remember from that film, because he was, had to be so bulked up all the time. And he was just constantly, for breakfast, he would eat like two chickens. Uh, he was just having to gorge food all the time to keep all that muscle mass. You strike me as such a counterculture guy. Like you're not a guy who strikes me as I want to be famous. And the perfect story is, hey, I enjoyed a $20 a week off-Broadway show versus doing X-Men. So once you encounter fame, was it a good thing or were you like, shit, this is not what I was looking for? Um, well, it sort of, you know, came up in different, uh, in different levels for me. I was sort of famous in Scotland early on in my career and I kind of, kind of ran away from that and moved to London and then that started, I started to get famous there and then and then you know I went to America and that kind of takes on a different level so I it was kind of a gradual thing so I wish I'm glad about it. I, I got used to it in, in, in those different stages but it, the thing about it is, is that after a certain while it you can't stop it you know you I, I remember when when I turned 40 my little sort of wobble when I turned 40 was that um, I didn't want to be famous. I, you know, I was the night before I was my 40th, I was like, I don't want to be famous anymore. And uh, and I sort of thought, well, how am I, what am I going to do about that? And I thought, you know, even if I stop doing all the, the things that make you famous, you're still, you know, films and things are out there for, you know, it's going to be years and years. You're going to be dealing with all that stuff of people recognize you and you and everything. So I just kind of thought, oh, well, let's just, Again, like the way I talk about trauma in this book, I decided that, you know, you have to sort of manage it and just try and, you know, what I do is I kind of don't live my life. I live my life in a way where I feel like certain times I do my famous stuff, like I go out and I promote things and I go to, you know, and that's all fine. And the rest of the time I'm, I'm a private person and I, I, uh, I, I, I have a sort of, a, when I go out into the streets, whatever I might have, a, it's a trajectory. I keep going, I wave at people going, thank you, yes, hello, hello. But just keep moving. You just keep moving through it, and sort of I think people get that. And also, I say to people, "Oh, I don't want to do a photo because if I do one with you tonight here in this bar, I'll have to do a photo with everybody, and and then my whole night will be about taking photographs with people rather than having fun with my friends. So it's lovely to meet you, but you know, there we are. And they're usually always like, "Oh, totally get it, Alan, totally." So I think I've made a way for myself to be do the things I want to do and live the life I want to live as well as sort of dealing with the famous stuff. I don't hide away like some people feel they have to, but I sort of, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, the pandemic was so great um, for me in terms of having some time out of my crazy life and also not having to deal with the level of self-consciousness on a daily basis that I 
deal with, you know, most of the time, all the time. And so coming back to it was more, coming back to it first of all was great because of course you wore a mask and that was a disguise. But now it's so interesting how that's all sort of getting less and less and I'm just coming back into the full pelt of dealing with that. And I think it's, that's the thing, it's the self-consciousness that you deal with and you have, to, you have to be on, you know, you have to switch it on no matter where you are. Um, because you're being sort of observed all the time and, and it's, a, it's a lot, but you know, it's, I, I enjoy my life. And as I say, I kind of, I plan it so that I feel like I'm in control of it and I, I can do, I can live the life I want to lead. It, it, you rung a bell for me when you were talking about making the decision between being the Pope on roller skates and choosing X-Men. And there's this famous saying, obviously in Hollywood, one for you and one for me. And it's always like when movie actors are signing on for uh, to do their get their passion project made but then the studio is like but yeah but you got to do x-men too for us is that kind of your philosophy sometimes because obviously bills have to be paid wealth has to be accumulated have you had the one for you one for me mentality throughout your career uh yeah i mean i, have, I talk about this in the book actually i have this thing which i call the hollywood bank and so you make a deposit by doing a big film i mean so Sometimes it's sometimes it works that, that you do a job and it is a big paying thing. It's a mainstream thing and it's actually really fulfilling and, and amazing, rarely. But mostly it's like you do something commercial, a big project, a big TV thing. It's fun, but, you know, you, you do it for sort of, I guess, one for them sort of thing. So you make a deposit into the Hollywood bank so that later you can take have a withdrawal, literally, actually, sometimes because to do, you know, to do a piece of theater or a small independent film, so you can like afford to take the time to do that. And also perhaps because of some of the other projects you've done in the past, you will, your name and bankability will help get those things made. So it's this constant sort of um, balancing act between making deposits and, you know, taking withdrawals. I guess it's the same thing as one for you, one for them, but I sort of see it in a much more transactional way uh, in terms of how I do it. Yeah, it's it's got to be brutal sometimes because you're like, you know, I've heard actors be in, in very candid and transparent interviews, just like, yeah, I did it for the paycheck. And yeah. as an artist, when your heart is maybe not into it or you just know it's kind of a shit project or there's just not a passion of yours, I can imagine it can be a dulling feeling sometimes. Yeah, you just have to like get your head down and get on with it. I mean, lots of people, real people, I mean, you know, people, civilians, uh, do jobs that they're maybe, it's not their passion, but they, they do it because it's their job. You pay, you get paid and you live your life and you look after your family or whatever. And uh, actors do that too sometimes. Sometimes you just do something because it's, you know, a lot of money. Hopefully you'll have a nice time and it won't be, you know, a bunch of assholes that you have to work with. Uh, but sometimes it is, but it, at least it's going to be a lot shorter. You know, those things when actors do it, it's not, it's not your entire life. It's not your, you know, full-time job. It's only going to be for, you know, most several months. So I think it's quite, a, I actually think that's why we're lucky. We have a, also like when you're acting and you have very intense relationships with people, short-lived intense relationships that you um, can pick up later on. You might not see people, some of the people you worked with for years and then you see them again and, and you know, you go right back to where you were when you made that sort of really great connection. So I really like that about acting. Is that why so many co-stars end up in relationships with each other? Is it like that type of intense bonding experience, almost like being stuck in the woods together? Uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, you, sometimes you're away from home. Often, you know, when that happens, people get into relationships, they're doing, they're probably playing partners or they're doing really 
intense things together often sort of you know they're playing people who are in love or attracted to each other so yeah when you do it and you have to do intimate scenes sometimes but i just think you spend a lot of time in you know doing very intense things with people and you get to you have a sort of shortcut to intimacy with them and uh and that sometimes can lead to actually being in a relationship yeah Juliana Margulies has a great story in her book, and I couldn't believe it. I heard her on another podcast, actually with the Sopranos guys, because she worked with Michael Imperioli uh, yeah. on a project. And I remember ER and just how big a phenomenon that was. And that was before we had Netflix and Amazon, the hundred other million streaming platforms we have now. But I remember when she left ER, how big a story it was. But I don't remember that she turned down 27 million to do it. And people yeah, were like, I read that too. That was, uh, they were destroyed. Did you ever have a situation like that where you had to make that type of decision? Maybe not 27 million, but life I, at that time, life changing money where you're like, shit, I'm set after this. But it's not, I don't know if this is what I want to do. I mean, I've never had that much of a, a thing, no, but I've done things where, you know, you think it's ridiculous money. And, uh, but, you know, often, you know, it's, it's with TV sometimes it's very long commitments potentially and sometimes it means you're away from home and you know stuff like that like it sounds you've got to spend eight months or nine months of the year not in a place that you actually want to live um so there's things there's lots of i think as you get older as well you get more i've certainly got more set in my ways and think i want to live here you know I, i'd rather not do i can go off and do it for a couple of months but i don't want to spend the bulk of my year away from where i live and want to live so yeah, you just get a bit more, you know, probably when I was younger, I did, I, I, when I did, when I was younger, I used to sort of fly around the whole world, just doing films all the time. And I'm kind of starting to do that again, actually. I'm about to go and do a couple of films. And uh, it's, I'm, I'm already like, oh, how exciting. I'm traveling off to Spain to make this film. And then I'm like, oh, but I won't be able to go upstate to the Catskills until. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. Well, Alan, congratulations. The brand new book is called Baggage. You're just a brilliant actor. And Again, I got to do this club coming thing. I remember when I was reading about it in page six when it was still in the dressing room. I'm like, this guy's so fucking cool coming up with this. But now that it. you've kind of turned it into one it's club, it's great. The sort of atmosphere of it, I still want it to feel like it's a party in my dressing room. That's you know, it's a small enough bar. It feels like a really intimate. It's just a lovely place. Yeah, pop up, pop on over. Six. Alan, you're awesome. Thank right. you for a great okay. interview. Enjoy Thanks. the rest of your week. Bye bye. That was, of course, Alan Cumming. Make sure to check out his new book. And what an unbelievable interview. He is a dude who I've been such a longtime fan of. And as someone who's been on red carpets for a decade, I've gotten to interview Alan a million times on red carpets. He's just the most cerebral, thoughtful, and articulate dude you'll ever meet. So make sure to check out his new book. It is incredible. Our next guest, one of the hottest bands of the last few years, they're back with a brand new album. They are terrific. And Shut up and dance. Is there a better anthem of the last few years? Like that was like my, that's my club song. Like I literally, when I say shut up and dance can think of like 30 club moments I've had over the last several years. So it was awesome to talk to walk the moon. They've had this meteoric rise to success. We talk all about it. And I think you guys are going to really dig their new album. Check it out. Here's walk the moon.
All right, we got a great day on The Endless Hustle as I'm joined by the guys behind the song that I absolutely crush, usually third on my playlist at the gym. They got a brand new album out. It's the guys from Walk the Moon. The album is called Heights. Pleasure to have you guys on the show. I'm actually a big, big fan. So thanks for joining. Love it. Thanks for having us. All right. So it all blew up a couple of years ago. And here we are now, what, fifth album? So this is, walk me through like this whole process. Like how exciting has this whole journey been for you guys? Um, well, right there, you you uh, you named one part of it. We, the It's our fifth album or is it our fourth album? We God, 10 years ago, we released an indie album, you know, on our own before there were labels or managers and, or anything like that. That album had Anna Sun on it and it's what got us signed. Um, and so we, we consider this our, our fourth record because it's like the fourth major label, label album. Um, but that, that journey with, um, with RCA and, uh, and all over the world from Anna Sun to Shut Up and Dance and now here... Uh, through um, you know this the last crazy couple of years, um, we're just so relieved to be right now. I, th I think the most present feeling is that we're relieved to be on the road. We're actually on tour right now, um, you know, back for the first time since everything went down, and um, it feels so good to be in front of people and, and playing new music. When Shut Up and Dance came out, that was when I became aware of you guys, as I'm sure millions of other people. And that song was just so catchy and so fun. And I had God knows how many drunk moments to it that I absolutely remember and probably can't remember as well. But when that moment hits, and for any band, it's always that first first hit that just transforms it. What was it like for each one of you guys when, when, it, when it finally hit? I think, I think um, <laughs> we were, so, the band had early on our touring, our touring entity kind of out outranked our where we were at radio, right? So we were touring and we were kind of used to playing big sold out shows for being a band with no radio hits, you know? And we were like kind of living this like this this nice life of being a live act. And um, and so the shows, the shows were not changing because the shows were already sold out, but we started getting data. Right. And we're like, oh, my God, all these radio stations are playing us. You know, how can that possibly be? And then we started hearing it on the radio because we're traveling all the time. And um, and and I think that's that's how it started was it started as data, which is such a weird like 21st century experience. Right. Is like uh, is to be receiving um, changes in your life in that in that way. And then like the next big thing was like we were hearing like, oh, they're playing it at stadiums. And they're playing it at weddings and it's becoming this part of um the culture and we had never had a song that was kind of that far out of our control at that point you know it wasn't it wasn't ours it was just part of um that moment that summer um and, and it was it was um bizarre and and wonderful and and obviously changed changed everything for us yeah, that was a song. I mean, I'm such a music head. And I remember when that song first came out and I was just like, this is so fucking fun. Like, I'm just like this. I still, like I said, I, I was halfway joking, but really not joking. Like it's high on my playlist at the gym and it just puts me in a mood. When you guys are writing something like that, do you know 
do you can you feel the magic as you're going through the songwriting process like this may be the hit sometimes Maybe. yes for for that song for that song yes um there was definitely a sense um when we like you know finally like it was you know sort of like the puzzle pieces finally like puzzle pieced in the chorus and we had we had um, the first demo of Shut Up and Dance, there was this feeling in the room like, well, that's 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 the one. That's just the one. Um, but I, I would be lying if I if I said I, I don't have that feeling many times, you know, when in the studio, like, oh, well, that's that's a freaking, you know, slam dunk. And then maybe it is, and maybe it's not. You know, there's there's like this uh, this totally um, unknown and mysterious. Uh, relationship with with radio and what what you know what is what even is success and like all those things but but yeah um there is that that feeling of like i can see the audiences i can see like people with their hands up i can see people i can hear them hanging you know singing along in my in my mind's eye or my mind's ear i guess yeah Sean, i mean what we you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to elaborate on on Nick's answer because, like, uh, you know, often when we when we you know finish an album, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, each of these songs could be a huge hit. Um, <laughs> that's sort of our attitude, but we we get like confirmation of that. Uh, like we and like the first confirmation of that was the first time we played "Shut Up and Dance" live uh, when people were singing the the chorus. Um, by the second chorus, they, they knew the words, they knew everything. Um, yeah. So when, after that, cause I had Andy Grammer on the show recently and obviously Andy has had two major anthems over the last decade. And it was funny because you always, I, I'll ask this question in different forms and everybody has different answers, but Andy gave such an authentic, honest answer. And I was just like, how much pressure did you feel after you create an anthem for a generation who's like trying to let go of all the bullshit they're dealing with. Did you feel pressure that you had to keep delivering hits? And he said he really did. It was really, it was a difficult struggle because you ride that high after a hit like that. And you're just like, shit, like, can I keep replicating this? Was once Shut Up and Dance came out, did you, obviously you're on tour, you're promoting it now, you're probably in your bubble. But once things begin to calm down, you get back in the studio to make heights. Are you kind of like, all right, we've got to we got to be hit makers now. Or you, or was it more a relaxed like we're okay here? I think it was more of the latter. I think I think it was more. I think we felt more like uh, this gives us some permission to do whatever we want with this next record, you know, and and. Uh, you know, we grew up watching behind the music, you know, on VH1, you know, and so we we are steeped in all those stories of artists who like would have a hit and then would have just like a total meltdown trying to write the follow up, you know, and I think we weren't super interested in having that experience, you know, we weren't super interested in in trying to replicate something. Um, and so it, 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 what we moved forward with ultimately was just like doing like whatever was coming naturally and not overthinking it, you know, cause over overthinking it, we didn't get there by overthinking it, you know? And so, and so why would that be the, the path forward? 
I love that answer. I love that. Because you're right. It's success. I always talk to people. I go, fame and success, it's a gift and a curse. It's a gift because you're like, man, finally, we made it. We got some money in our pockets. But then on the flip side, the pressure that you can put on yourself, which is why you hear all these mental health and anxiety conversations happening right now. Totally, so totally. That, it's, you know, it's, uh, I think, I think, I think the pressure came from outside. Do you know what I mean? I don't think we were thinking about how do we follow this up, but then, <laughs> but then people could plant that seed, you know? And then, you know, if other people ask, then you start to think about it and you can start spiraling out. I was the, talking- The pressure all- Go ahead. Oh, I was just making a joke. The pressure all came from wedding DJs. They just need more to play. Yeah. By the way, you've got to hear your song and that song in particular in the strangest of places. What have been some of the crazier places you've heard Shut Up and Dance? I heard it, uh, but we, we were in Japan in Kyoto and uh, I had gotten separated from the group and had like no cell service in that that particular zone um but i walked into like a just like a touristy like chopstick shop um and it was playing in there so i thought they were like just messing with me <laughs> or something the real question is sean did you ask him to comp your meal and say this is my song please comp because i want to <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I, I should have asked this. that. Really should have. I uh, I went to a wedding as a guest once, and they had a live band playing, and um, and I, I remember like near the like three quarters of the way through the night, they they start playing "Shut Up and Dance." I hear the guitar part for "Shut Up and Dance," and I look up at the band, and the guitar player is just staring at me, smiling, <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh no, he knew me the whole time. <laughs> he, it really made me early on." So. That was fun. I remember this isn't, I guess this isn't hearing the song, but it, it was during that, that era. Um, and we, we had, there was some like weird, like get like voucher we got from, from attending the MTV video awards or something where we could, we, if we could make it to Bali, we could have a free stay at this new resort or something. And so a few of us and our girlfriends at the time, like went, went down there. Um, and we, we weren't there on tour. I, I'd never been there. Don't, don't know anybody in Bali. I'm like the only uh, tourist for miles in this like random little market. And I don't know, I'm, I'm looking at some kind of souvenir and this this little family, like this young mom and dad and their, and their kid like come up to me and they're like, walk the moon, shut up and dance. And I'm, 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 like, I'm like pinching myself, like, are you, are you serious? Like, how is this even possible? Um, it's just so, so far removed from Ohio, you know, like where we came from, just, just so wild. Yeah, it's so funny because I love, I always love talking to musicians because Music is one of those things where almost unlike any other industry, you really have to grind away for years before you have your moment. It's changed a little bit now with like TikTok and all the other shit we're seeing and people can become famous overnight. But unless you have talent, that's hard to sustain, right? But 
we always hear 10,000 hours. The Beatles didn't become the Beatles overnight. They put in the 10,000 hours. For you guys, as you're going through your 10,000 hours moments, what were kind of some of the biggest learnings before you had really started seeing sold out concerts, even before Shut Up and Dance may have hit? What were some of the biggest learnings that you were discovering both about yourselves and about the band as you were going through this journey to become who you've become? Hmm. Um, you know, as I've, as I've gotten older, I've become like really interested in things like law of attraction and um, manifestation and, and mindset and that sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, cultivating positive perspectives and, and like, um, bringing more of what you want into your life, you know, just, just by, um, this sort of your, your approach to daily life. And when I look back at like the early, early days before, um, you know, like on our path to getting signed, I think I had this very natural, like accidental, like bizarre certainty that it was just a matter of time that it was just always going to happen. And I remember, you know, a time of like booking dozens of gigs and had no band and, and just like went out and would meet, um, meet guys who'd be, who were playing other gigs and invite them to play. And, and that's, that's more or less how I met these guys. And, um, and just relentlessly playing just stupid, stupid gigs, like anything we could get. And, and just relentless with like the email list or giving, you know, making sure people were, went home with a CD or anything like that. Just looking back being like, wow, like that certainty, whether that was, you know, it was, it was before I had heard of, you know, or knew of any sort of like, like mindfulness techniques or anything like that. And it was just that, that um, drive and, and, and sort of pure blind faith. Um, and I, and I actually think that was like a really big part of like what got me um, through those years and what, what like carried the band through like some more like kind of unstable times, you know, like around our, our, our origin um, and, and got us signed and, and onto a path where we could start questioning things and, and start thinking about things too much. <laughs> I can love that answer, dude. That was awesome. Did you guys feel the same way? Was it destined? I, um, I truly, I truly think that, that Nick, um, is maybe the only person I've ever met who uh, was more delusional than I was, you know, <laughs> in, in our certainty of rock stardom, you know. Um, and, and I think, I think, you know, speaking to what he was saying about laws of attraction, I think that's how we, how part of how we got here, you know, is that like uh, Nick and I were both willing to drive four hours through a, a, a snowstorm to play at a pizza place to six people, you know. And when we got there we were going to play fucking hard. You know, we were going to go, we were going to go all in on this, on this gig. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's, uh, I think that's part of how the band got here. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult to, uh, I think, 
I think it was difficult to achieve the kind of blind faith if you have a like a B, like a plan B, you know, it like it's like like to get where we to do what we did, we needed four guys who were all in. You know, we needed everybody in the band to be all in all the time. And finding people who can do that and can really like commit to that is hard. You know, it's, it's, I think a lot of people want to, um, but just like logistically, it's difficult to, to make it happen. Um, and we were lucky enough to have a, a group of dudes um, who, were, who were able to go on the road for four weeks and, and were willing to sleep on couches um, to make this, to make this dream happen, you know, which is good because it really never gets more logistically, like logistically, it never gets any easier. That's, that's like sort of like probably my biggest takeaway <laughs> over the years is it just, it, uh, like the, that, that's sort of like the most valuable skill is just sort of being able to, to roll with the punches. Um, Yeah, because because it never gets really easier. No, on on no level is everything like perfect. Um, yeah, you you still get like high level gigs where we had a very very high level gig recently where um, the local production didn't tell us that they were going to set off fireworks, and they set <laughs> off fireworks like right right like three feet from from the faces of us. Uh, which was which is like a nice nice surprise, but yeah, it's like a scene like out of it's like it. the scene out of Almost Famous where he, like he gets yeah. electrocuted, <laughs> where, exactly. where Russell Russell from Stillwater gets electrocuted. Yeah, we we live the life of Spinal Tap, twenty four seven. You actually got me thinking there, it's Sean. True. You guys have to you know we always hear about it like the private engagements like you'll hear about some billionaire bringing in like Taylor Swift to play his daughter's bat mitzvah or something like, and he's throwing like, do you guys, have you guys gotten invited for any just crazy gigs that you may have done or not done that were just like off the wall? Awesome. I don't know if we've taken any of those recently. I, I think pretty early on, we were like, no more weddings. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we've gotten, we've gotten a few requests. We played, we played one for like a very, very, very dear friend in recent years. And that was freaking awesome. That was like, that was a, a beautiful experience. Um, but <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> this is kind of the opposite of what you're saying. This is the opposite of the story of the, like, uh, you know, like the Sultan of some, uh, some foreign country, some for, some dignitary having, you know, flying us in on a private jet and, and playing before him and his two friends. Um, we, the first time we got um, accepted to play Bonnaroo, um, 2011, I think it's 2011. I think it's still before, like we were, this is still before we were signed maybe, or like the early, early days and we, right, okay, okay, so I'm, I'm remembering it in real time, so forgive me. Um, we, we got the gig and we got the dates and I looked at them and my heart sank because I had forgotten and I don't think that I told the guys, y'all, I, I, promised, I promised our friend that, uh, that we'd play his wedding that weekend. Um, we, like we can't, we can't cancel on him, like we gotta do this. 
the dates worked out just so that we had actually two two separate shows at Bonnaroo on like a Thursday or no, I guess it was a Friday evening and then could like fly at like 6 a.m. to wherever it was somewhere in Ohio and and play this wedding. Literally, we we played like two of the like craziest gigs of our whole lives and stay up all night doing Bonnaroo things. And I'm still, I'm like, not only are we the band, but I'm also the MC. And I'm so, I'm like in my jeans and I have Bonnaroo mud still on me. And I'm like, and here's our bride and groom. <laughs> like we, but we, uh, we, we made it through and, um, and they weren't disappointed, but I think, I think the band, uh, I think it took a while for the band to forgive me for, for that, uh, that they, nightmare. They did ask us to turn down at one point. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're like, Hey, can you guys play a little quieter? <laughs> You're like MFers. We just came from Bonnaroo. Like leave yeah. me alone. <laughs> That's amazing. What an amazing fucking story. That was awesome, dude. I would have been, you're better, you're a better friend than I am. I would have bailed on the wedding and just partied at Bonnaroo for the next couple of days. <laughs> By the way, what's the dream gig? Like they just announced the Super Bowl halftime show, which is actually pretty cool this year with Dre, Eminem and that whole contingent. But like, what's the dream gig for you guys? Is there one on the bucket list? I feel like SNL is a bucket list for us. Yeah. yeah, I've been I've been thinking about Wembley a lot recently. Since um. Since they played at Wembley and Ted Lasso, actually, I've been thinking like, oh, it'd be cool to play Wembley, wouldn't it? Yeah. SNL is a pretty good one. I actually I was trying to think I was going to th say Coachella, but SNL is kind of cooler, isn't it? I think we would agree with you. <laughs> yeah, and the after parties are legendary. That can you? I can't even imagine like just being at one of those after parties. I interview celebrities all day, every day, but I've never been invited to an SNL after party. I don't feel like you've made it unless you're at an SNL after party. <laughs> How about sports? Have you guys gotten to do some cool sports stuff? Play national anthems, half times, anything fun? We sang the national anthem at a Bengals game a few years ago. And it's, it's honestly, it was the scariest gig that we've ever done. It was the most, it was the most stressful gig. Um, so the, the thing about singing on the field is that the sound coming out of the speakers doesn't get to you for like a second and a half after you start singing, right? And so, and so you start singing, oh, say, can, and then you hear, like coming from the rafters oh you know and so like we're down there trying to sing in harmony with this like speech jammer thing happening in our brains and it's um it was so scary it was so scary and it was thrilling right don't you guys remember it just being like like when we were done it just like so amazing all um, adrenaline yeah yeah i was gonna yeah, add, well first of all you guys got to do it now that the Bengals are actually really good right right I mean, that's how you know we're the real ones, you know, is that we were there. <laughs> we were there when it was going less well. We, you're like, yeah. we were there when they were at the bottom. Now invite us back when we're at the top. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's awesome. Well, congratulations, guys. The brand new album is called Heights. I think you guys are awesome. I love your sound. And uh, hopefully you're going to have some more bangers coming off this album. But continued success. Really great stuff. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure. Good luck, guys. And good luck with Heights. And can't wait to see what you guys keep doing. Cool. See you later. Thanks for having us. See you. All right, that was Walk the Moon. Make sure to check out their new album. It is out this week. It is terrific. Finally, our last guest, Christian Harloff of the movie Trivia Schmodown, to see what this guy's created. Listen, as someone who has had to create content for a long, long time, to be able to create this universe like Christian has is just incredible, and I think you guys are going to really dig his vibe. He has a fantastic story And now what he's just doing with Schmodown is awesome. And this live event at December 4th is, I think, just if you're in L.A., you got to be there. So here he is, Christian Harloff. All right, we've got a great day on the Endless Hustle. As I'm joined by a guy doing some really cool stuff, and that cool stuff is called the movie Trivia Schmodown. Christian Harloff, I have followed you for a long time. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. I want to talk to you all about Movie Trivia Schmodown because I think what you're doing with it is absolutely incredible. Let's start right off the bat. How did this thing begin for you? Oh, man, what a crazy journey. First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, also, would like to return the favor, big fan as well. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, it, it's, you know, what's crazy about it is we started, myself and Mark Ellis, who I met during my days at the comedy store, and we were both regulars at the club, and we found a, a mutual love for films, and we started a, a YouTube channel called Schmoes No. And the idea, I, I grew up listening to Howard Stern, right? I always loved uh, everything, the kind of what he did. I still think he's one of the best, uh, if not the best interviewer in the history uh, of radio. Uh, and what I wanted to do was have like a movie show that was similar to that, where it wasn't just people trying to become like, you know, the the news outlet from for movie news. It was, it was more of like just people shooting the shit and having fun talking about movies. And then we started doing that for about two hours. We were on Adam Carolla put us on his show and we started our own podcast. It started to, to gain some waves and we started a segment and Mark and I were big sports fans. So we're like, what if we take like 14 of our people from the crew and we do like March Madness style, put them up against each other in movie trivia and just see who the last person standing is. And, you know, at the time we were with Maria Menounos was was she had this house that she was letting us do our show from and it was and she was also she's involved with the wwe and she had the old school wcw belt and we're like what if we gave the winner that thing like who wouldn't want that and we did it and it was really popular following year was like well now now we did it let's do it with teams but let's open it up a little bit. And we had friends from like Rotten Tomatoes and IGN and, and Nerdist. And we're like, let's like Jessica Chobot was in it. We had Katie Sackoff in it. We, we were started bringing people in. We're like, let's do this. Let's make it a Teams thing. So once that really hit, we went to Collider and we started working at Collider for a bit. And I was like, well, what if we turn this thing not into a yearly thing, but what if we make it a weekly thing? And it becomes like the UFC of movie trivia. And we take people from all over, from whether they're actors, directors, writers, pundits, 
fans, whoever they are, the best of the best in movie trivia and pit them up against each other because at the time, you know, esports making its move. And I'm like, right. At one point, I got people just playing video games. Who's going to want to watch them? Fast forward to thousands of people sitting in the stadiums watching. And we're like, why can't you do that with movie trivia? And we did because we started putting it in in theaters and we started going uh, across the country to do it and people and treating it. If you treat something like it is the most important thing in the world, other people will feel that. If you treat it like it's ah, this is just a goof, then people will look at it as a goof. But if you treat it like it's the next thing and it's and it's exciting, when you come to one of our events, it feels like a fight. I love to see what this thing has become. You're now doing live events. You have an enormous, enormous event coming up on December 4th, which I want to talk all about. Yeah. To take it from just a digital presence a digital series and to transition it into what it's become walk me through that process so it's a great question thank you so what we um what we wanted to do like we started it in studio and the idea was to make it a hybrid because yeah it's movie trivia and when we first started a lot of times people were like ah, i'm just here for movie trivia i'm not here for the theatrics of it but then once you realize wait a minute this is a show and it's not just trivia. And what I mean by that is I wrote for the WWE long, long time ago. And inside of that, I was like, well, what do you take the theatrics of sports entertainment with characters and make people invested in, in, in characters themselves and, you know, catchphrases and, and good guys and bad guys, you know, heels, baby faces, the whole thing. What if you did that, but you never mess with the trivia. You always make the trivia 100% legit, hence the UFC side of it. So it's like that's where it's like a hybrid of UFC meets WWE meets Jeopardy is what what you can really say this thing is. And as we're watching this transform inside a collider and we started inviting people into the studio to watch. And so you'd have 50, 80 people, 100 people there inside of this cramped studio. So I was working my old manager at the time, uh, JP Piccarello, was working at full screen. And he was doing live event tours with YouTube creators and happened to be that uh, this woman, Megan uh, Sanborn, who he was working with, was fans of, of Mark and myself. And she's like, well, what if we got these guys? Like, I know those guys. Let's go talk to them. And they wanted to talk to us about like doing Mark and I doing our show, just the two of us. And we had a meeting and I said, well, what if we actually did the Schmodown? live because the schmodown is kind of built for live because we do it with just people and they lose their minds and that's like friends and family and stuff what if we actually the fans that are watching this we give them an opportunity to come watch it live and so we did three events in los angeles and we sold them all out and then we're like well what if we put it on the road so we went to new york and we sold that out and we went to chicago in front of a thousand people we did it there and we're like it, you just you know it because you can feel it you can feel the energy of it and that's when we're like well yeah and i can't even tell you arthur how many people came up to me afterwards and like no this is the future of this thing is live like the the every time we go we just did an event in new york and people and people who had never seen it before come in and going okay if i had just heard about movie trivia online and looking at it i would have scrolled past it but uh, at first but now to see it I don't want to miss a single match because like, I can feel the energy. I care about these people. I care about that's where the theatrics come into because you build characters, you build these larger than life personas. And when they deliver inside a trivia and it's challenging to me because, you know, in the again, the UFC comparison, if I have two people going up against each other, let's say it's uh, it's it's Marisol McKee, who is the current champion and, and Dan Merle, who's like the great is like the Michael Jordan of the movie trivia. Shimona. And if I put them two up against each other, 
I, as a creator, have to now say, okay, well, the storyline here for Marisol, should she win, is this. But I got to be prepared that Dan's going to win because Dan's won the title five times before. So what's the storyline if Dan wins? Who can crash there? Who can do this? What's the next setup? And it's like a choose your own adventure that I've been working with since this thing really started. Well, what I love is you using your wrestling metaphor with this. There's a million wrestling organizations out there. Obviously, we know WWE and now AEW are probably the two standouts. But at the end of the day, what people really connect with are the people, are the wrestlers. And essentially, what you've done here is you've made people connect with the movie trivia contestants because you can do trivia anywhere. You can go to a local bar and do quizzo. You can do anything. But at the end of the day, people are cheering with or against the people that you've brought into this universe. So in many ways, I feel like it's almost more about the people than it is about the trivia, right? A hundred percent, because the look, it's the game that hooks you at first. It's the, the it's if, if you don't if you're not familiar with it. Right. It's like there's let's 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 take the characters of people you do know. And you use the example of AEW. Chris Jericho is one of our competitors. So right? Chris Jericho played against Kevin Smith and we had a big match against Kevin Smith versus Chris Jericho. Obviously, those two names, people hear them and they go, oh, well, what the hell is this? I want to see it. Some people thought it was a wrestling match. Like Kevin Smith is wrestling. And then they watch it's movie trivia and they see it. That's one way to get them in. But the other way to get people in initially is, oh, movie trivia. I think I'm pretty good at movie trivia. And you, and you go in and you look at movie trivia. But the way you hook them is exactly what you're talking about. It's if, if they hook in and they see somebody that they relate to or they see somebody that they find funny or that they want to root against. Like we have people that that fit the whole model of what a heel is supposed to be. And my personal opinion is I think sometimes wrestling has lost the idea and the art of what a heel is supposed to be. Heel's not supposed to be cool. He's supposed to be someone that you want to boo and to get the other guy or girl over at hundred percent. And we, we want to do that. And we have somebody, tons of people who do that now, but you got to care. You got to care if you want them to lose. You got to care because that's the whole thing you build through the character. You build through um, the, the factions, you build through the storylines and people at first, they fight against it at first because they're not, they're not used to it. Right. They're like, well, let's just movie trivia. And then they go, well, wait a minute. No, I'm, I actually really, that's oh, That's the person I watched last time. I like this guy. I like this girl. This is, and then they realize they start to find themselves rooting for him. And then it starts to this trickle effect of, Oh wait, Marisol McKee. I saw her win at that. Oh, she's, she's competing in Philadelphia. I want to go watch that. And it's, it's like, that's where the, the, the boxing and UFC model is kind of based off of, of following your favorite fighters, watching them fight once or twice. And then realizing I like, I watch football. I can't play football. Right. Like I when I see when I see like I, I always flash my Giants guy. So I always remember the, the, the Tyree catch. And I'm like, I can't do that. I can't tell you how many times people have been in the audience going, how the hell does Dan Merle know who the third lead in that obscure movie is? It's incredible to watch what these mental athletes and I have no problem calling them that they're mental athletes. And if you watch long enough, you will call them that, too. It's funny you brought up football because I'd mentioned the date, December 4th. That is essentially your Super Bowl yeah. for this for this organization. Walk me through what's happening December 4th because you and I were able to talk a little bit about it. It is incredibly exciting. Yeah, it's it's the Super Bowl. It's it's WrestleMania. Um, it is 
everything that comes to the end of the season, all of our championships, we have four championships throughout the duration of the season. We have the team's championship, which is everything inside a general movie, but you have a part general movie trivia, but you have a partner and there's a, there's a different format to it. Um, there's the singles championship, which is the main championship, which is the same division as teams, but you're all by yourself. There is the star Wars division, which you think, Oh, I know star Wars pretty well. You don't. Uh, no, not compared to what these people know. And then there is the uh, the Inner Geekdom Championship, which is specialized movies, whether it's Lord of the Rings, uh, Star Trek, uh, Jurassic Park, like all the geeky movies put into this one division. All of those championships are on the line. And then we have one other specialized match that I can't announce at the moment, but there's five big matches that are happening. Um, and it is the end of the year kind of spectacle. If you've never seen it before, if you have never heard it before, this is the gateway drug into the movie trivia showdown because it's going to you all the energy Everything that this is about, it essentially is serving as a pilot for our next season, which begins in February. I've been watching what you've done with the Schmodown Entertainment Network. You started this thing just a couple of months ago. It is so difficult to cut through the clutter in the content industry. But yet, and this is a huge applause for you at the moment, you already have over 20,000 subscribers on YouTube. Talk to me about that journey because building a new digital channel. Listen, it's not 10 years ago when only a few people were doing this everybody's now doing digital. How have you been able to cut through the clutter and grow the Schmodown Entertainment Network? Well, thank you. The Movie Trivia Schmodown channel itself was based on, we had, it initially was the Schmoes No channel. We had gotten that channel. It currently stands at 295,000, which is the Schmodown. And then the, the problem was that there was all of the content that we had, our other pop culture stuff. And I do my show that's on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That's a pop culture show called The Big Thing. Um, and then I also do a Star Wars show, which is on Fridays. But I was like, there's too much material on the main channel and it's confusing. So if someone's listening to me right now and they want to go check out the movie trivia Schmodown, and then they go to tune in and then they find a star Wars show or me talking about the latest trailer, like, well, this isn't what this guy was talking about on this hustle. What, 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 what is this? It would be too confusing. So the idea then was, wait a minute, let's start a new channel. And the same question was brought up immediately. What you said, that is a, that's a tough thing to do right now because there's so much content out there. There's so much people doing certain things of, of in similar nature. So how do you, how do you cut across it? And there's a strategy behind it. There's a way to do it. I also like to do things on my, on my own terms, right? Like talk about what I want to talk to with my friends, kind of goof around. It's more, it's based off of more loose conversation. We cover a big thing topic, but let's say we're talking about Dune. We'll just, talk about doing and talk about exactly what, how we're feeling about it. We don't need to hit like certain points. You're not going to see a lot of research on our show. I'll tell you that right now. Like you want the, 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 I've been on the shows where there's tons of experts. We'll get people who know their shit, but we're going to be talking just the same way you and I, when these cameras are off and we got into a conversation about doing, that's what you're going to get on our show. And people have been responding to that. And we, and, you know, we started the, the new channel up around two months ago. We just hit over 20,000 subscribers and it's building every day. And, uh, and we're really pushing it because the idea is that each one of those channels, the movie trivia Schmodown, and then the Schmodown entertainment network or excuse me, Schmodown entertainment channel um, is going to be, uh, they're going to be scratching each other's backs. And it's, it's that also eventually will be a gateway for people to discover both. We've obviously talked a great deal about what you've been able to accomplish, but where does this go next? Three, five, 10 years down the line. Yeah. What are the goals for this? Well, man, I mean, it was so, 
it's 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 a bit heartbreaking when I when I rewind two years ago, right? When everybody else was going through heartbreaking stuff as as well as how when when the world just kind of changed because the Schmodown was in on such a trajectory and and, and a movement. We were we had just sold out the uh, a show in Atlanta. We had a great match between Dan Merle and, and Ben Bateman for the championship, and things were on the up and up. And, and ESPN was going to cover us, and they came to they came to the events, and they were going to do a big four page article and do all this stuff, and then the world stopped, and everything just kind of and and then we were which we were doing all these live events, we were getting momentum, and we were doing studio things, and our season was cooking, and then it was how do you pivot? What do you what do you do? And like everyone else, um, as I'm sure you, you know as well, too, you, you, we switched to digital and the show became a digital show, which the show is not. It's not intended. It was built out for like six months to run digital. And now we're on year two and we're finally getting back to studio and, and running it. So the goal to answer the question is to get back to that movement of where we were to get people in different cities, to have people look at the website and go to the schmodownlive.com and look at it and say, I want this in my hometown. I want this in my country. I want it to move. I want it to become very synonymous the same way that what, what, as I mentioned previously with esports, what esports is done with the video game industry is I want that to, to be for what we do for for trivia in general, because the, the movie trivia, this game works. The, the game itself, the dynamic of the game, the intensity of the game, the investment in the game, it all works. Um, the eventual is to then change it. Why not then maneuver into the uh, the sports trivia schmodown, uh, hip hop trivia schmodown, uh, whatever whatever it might be. We can do it. We just need people to get a hold of it. Say, oh, I never seen this, but what I'm telling people out there, if you're listening. You can go and you can check out the movie trivia schmodown on on YouTube, and you can see what it's all about. And you can go into the archives, but to be there in person to get it, to understand it, to feel it. If you can get there in person, be there in person. I guarantee you afterwards, you'll find me and you're going, I heard you on Endless Hustle and you're right. How do you find these people? Obviously, when we think of wrestling, you think of NXT, you think of some type of starter league. Yeah. How do you find the people for the Schmodown? Where do they come from? So initially they came from, as I said, they well, when nobody knew what the Schmodown was, it was really me reaching out to friends. And me reaching out, like I mentioned, Dan Merle being the best. Dan Merle was a was a colleague who, at the time, I worked at Collider. He worked at uh, Screen Junkies, and we just had done various things together. and And I had asked him if he if he wanted to compete, and and he did. Um, other people that I knew, friends, and and people just that I used to see at screenings. That's how it was built initially. But then, as it started to catch fire, and people started to really pay attention to it, then. What's really interesting today is that the people who are now like Marisol McKee, who is a perfect example. She is she is the current movie trivia Shimona, uh champion. She was a fan and she was sitting in uh, the audience when we did a show in Orlando and we we're at a Q&A session at the end. And her then boyfriend raises his hand and goes, She's a massive fan. She could be great. And she's like, shut up, shut up, shut up. Right. And then afterwards I talked to her and I was like, do you think you can hang? She's like, I think I'd be, a, I, I would be pretty good. And I'm like, there are fan leagues. People started like fan leagues around the, just in the internet and they played and she got involved there. And that's how we saw her. And we had, we held dra- a draft and managers drafted, uh, a manager drafted her and she, she got into the league that way. Last year we started a Twitch channel 
And on Twitch, we started the First Class League, which is going to be our official digital league. And we put auditions out there from people all over the country. We have people that, that play from Australia and Canada and all over the place. And we build out talent through the digital side and we watch them. And we've, I mean, we've had people who from in New York. So Josh Horowitz, who people uh, should know, who's very great interviewer over on MTV is fantastic. And he is a great competitor. He's had a great run this season, but Griffin Newman, who has he plays Orko right now on, on masters of the universe revelations. He was in, he was Arthur in, in the tick and he was great in drafting, but uh, he is, he is so good. And he was able to really show on the digital side, but now he's going to be competing in all the live events. So we do auditions. We have people compete from all over the place. Now we have our own digital league that we can very similar to what you just mentioned with NXT. It is, it is our version of NXT. Let's talk about the man behind Schmodown. For those who don't know who Christian Harloff is, who are you? How did this all begin for you? What were you before Schmodown? Always an idiot, still an idiot, Arthur. <laughs> I uh, I was a it was a class clown, you know, same thing. Back in couldn't couldn't concentrate for anything back in in school, and except trying to make people laugh and entertaining people, and uh, didn't really know what the hell I wanted to do with myself. I just when I was in seventh grade, my mom took me and my brothers to uh, to San Diego, California. It was like a different planet to me. I'd never really been out that far past New York before. So when I went there, I fell in love with California, like immediately. And I don't know what it was, but it was, it was just implanted in my brain that at some point I will get back to California. Um, And I then went to college of Florida state. When I was at Florida state, I, I actually ran, um, I ran a boxing league and it, it was this thing where I would have it. And it was, Cops used to come to it. It was, I don't know how we got away with it. I'll be completely honest with you. Cops would come after the bars closed, closed down at two in the morning. Everybody would come to these things that we, and I did very similar to what I'm talking about here. I built up the competitor, the boxers, and I, and I, and I built up a league and championships and all that. And, and we ran it for, even when I left, my brother took it over and we ran it for a while. Um, but that was something I was very interested in, but I wanted to, I, I just, I got back to California. And once I graduated Florida state, I went to, I went to LA, I got there and I had discovered stand-up comedy when I was in, uh, in Florida state. And when I got to LA, I started like, oh, I want to be a writer like everybody else. And I was like, I'm gonna be a writer. I'm gonna do this. And I was working at this place called intermedia and I'm working behind the desk. I'm like, this, this is not me. I can't, I, I can't do this. So I wound up quitting, got myself into stand-up comedy, which is, a story that I've, I've told before, but it's the most embarrassing thing. And I, I, I guess I, I, I've got to tell you at this point, I was, <laughs> was at the, for, it was my 23rd birthday, I believe. And my buddy took me to the improv in Hollywood, California. And we were there and I was, and I had you know, a drink or two and I was, place was packed. So Rick Overton is a very famous comedian and, and just the kind of legend of the game. He was up there doing improv games. And he's up there with a bunch of people and he's doing these and he's doing these games. And he's like, you know, every once in a while we invite someone from the crowd, but nobody ever really wants to do it because they're afraid we're going to attack him. I was in the mood. I jumped up. They were like, all right. And they looked at me like sharks with just blood in the water. Right. And I don't know what it was that night, but I was just I was on and I was they would come at me and I had something. Boom. And I had the crowd going and it inspired me. Okay, I got to get back on stage. But I get off stage and as I'm 
riding this high, you know, I'm in LA for, I don't know how long, not, not very long at that point. The tap on the shoulder. And someone says like, you were really, really funny. You were really great. I look over and it was Sarah Silverman. And I said, what I should have said now was, Oh my God, thank you so much. I've seen her at the Boston comedy club before. And I'm like, can I pick your brain? I'd like to buy you a drink. Where should I get up? Any advice, blah, 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 blah. That's what I should have said. Instead, I look at Sarah Silverman and I say, you are great in something about Mary. And I walk away. She's in it for two seconds. She's barely in the movie. She looked at me like I was from another planet. And it always stuck with me like, what a dick. <laughs> so stupid, so stupid. But it's it's one of those things that inspired me though to get me, myself back on stage. Um, and I did. And I and I and that's where I've, I've the majority of the stuff that's come out of my life. Uh, that's good. has been from stand up comedy. At the end of the day, what it takes to build something like this is an entrepreneurial spirit. Where does your entrepreneurial spirit come from? Oh, man. Um, I think it's it's. I just not happy with n- nothing against people who are able to do the, like I mentioned before, the, the, just not the nine to five and doing that and, and being, I just, I don't know if it's ADD or whatever it might be, but it's just a matter of, I always want, I have an idea that I want to do. My wife always says, Hey, you're never gonna, you're never gonna, she's like, no matter where you go, you're going to want to jump up one, one step higher. Like it's, you're not going to, it's like, sometimes it's okay to just say that, that one, that one worked. I think the answer is I never feel satisfied. You know what I mean? Like, I, I like as far as where it comes from, I always I'm always trying to make like I have the ideas of what you asked earlier for for Schmodown of what the goal is next. And until I achieve those goals, like I don't feel like I've succeeded. Right. You know, like and I think that that adds into that that question of entrepreneurship is that it's that idea of how, how an evolution. Right. Like I, I don't like to stay the same. I, I never like to just if if things are working I always feel like, I don't know if it's a fear or whatever it is. I always feel like eventually it won't like it never, it, people always, because people, human nature, people just get bored eventually of no matter what it is. Like it, it's that age old thing. We love, we love to build people up. Then we love to watch them fall. And then we love to watch them come back. Right. So it's always like, I always feel like this isn't enough. It's like, you got to just keep trying to climb because either someone's going to try to knock you off or there's a better idea out there, or, or someone's going to do the same idea. And I just don't ever want to feel complacent, if that makes sense. I always tell people the gift of the artist is the biggest curse of all because it's an insatiable hunger and a never ending paranoia. hundred percent. You can't go to bed in peace. You're always like, I'm either going to fail or I've succeeded, but I'll fail tomorrow or I'm succeeding and I'll fail in a month. But there's always the fear of failure. Yep. Dude, I'm telling you, man, like it was, it's that thing where like, especially like with the movie trivia Schmodown, like I, I am so confident in it. And I know that people who like wrestling, people who like sports, people who like competition, I know that they're in the crowd. They'll love this thing, but it's just like, I feel like I just want to drag people get in there and watch it, get in there because people are so like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. I'm not going to, nah, I don't know what that is. And like, Oh, I wish I would have known what this was. It's right there. It's right there. And it's like, and that's how I feel. I'm like, how do I get more people to, to look? How do I get more people to do this? How do I uh, change the game? How do I get people more excited? It's always, how do I, how do I, how do I? And that's like you said, it's a blessing and it's a curse. Like I know that if I put these pieces together, the right person sees it or does this, that it will work. But it's still, it's like these, these like Lord of the Rings spiders crawling around in there going, you know, eh, you know, maybe, maybe we get the jewel. Maybe we don't, you got to figure it out. You better get somebody in here. Where's Samwise when you need him. 
you've had so many people participate, but who are some of the dream contestants? Who would you just give your right arm to have take part in Schmodown? Um, tough question, because I think that there's, there's ways to get people involved that isn't even necessarily competing, right? Like we got close at one point of having, um, Dwayne Johnson involved. Very That would have been unbelievable. Yeah. We, and, and I still think, because I was, I had some really good conversations with, with the, the company, um, seven bucks and, and there was some really good stuff that was coming on. I just didn't just, you know, like anything else just didn't work out, but if anybody was really going to understand this overall thing, it would be him. Like he, he the, and, and like I said, it's not even necessarily like competing, eh, you know, him and Kevin Hart would be a lot of fun to do like a one-off type thing. But what this is and knowing what he's done in his career and knowing the way he sees business, if he really got a hold of this thing and a lock of it, like I think that he, him being involved, Mark Cuban, someone that I also think is, are people who, as far as involvement goes, um, because we are, you know, Skybound, myself, it's kind of very happy with everything we've been doing, but there's, there are certain people that when they come in, they, they, there's, there's a certain, you know, look at Mark Cuban, what he's done with sports, look at the rock, what he's done in his career to have those type of people involved in the Schmodown one way or another, that'd be pretty special. The two guys you named are the perfect matrix of understanding the merging sectors of entertainment, sports, news, yeah. humanity. Those two guys, there are very few people on the planet who have done a better job of bringing those worlds together. So really great people you named there, Christian. Thank you, man. All right, man. Let's talk all about the show. Obviously, you plugged it. But yeah. how do people actually get to go see this show December 4th? All right. So if you can be in the Los Angeles area, I mean, it's, it's so great. We have people travel internationally to come to it. Finally, now that they're able to, they can, and they're, they're people traveling from all over the, the country. Uh, there's Airbnbs being rented out, all this, like, listening to the fan community talk about getting super excited. It, like I mentioned, it's like, it's, it's our WrestleMania. So the way that you would do it is you go to the schmodownlive.com And the second you get there, you'll get a prompt to see the Schmodown Spectacular six. This is our sixth Schmodown Spectacular. And you just go there and you get yourself a ticket. I believe that there's still general admission tickets up. There are some, I don't, there might be some VIP and what that is, is like a meet and greet. You can go, we have a, we have a, a talent expo where when you get there, um, we might be close to sold out on that one, but it's, it's essentially all, a lot of the competitors, some of the popular competitors down there signing merch and taking pictures and playing games and doing all that. But um, the actual event itself starts at 12 PM. And it is going to be, uh, it's going to be a blast, man. All the titles on the line and you can get your tickets. It's pretty easy. This is the schmodownlive.com. My final question. Obviously, you have to look at this as a business, as a business plan. Yeah. But do you find yourself getting emotionally invested with certain contestants? Do you find yourself saying, who cares about ticket sales for a minute? I'm actually cheering for this person or that person. Um, it's hard for me to cheer for people. Cause I got to stay, I have to stay neutral inside of it because, you know, if there's a certain, because I get it all the time. I am, I'm, I'm, I won't try to lie that well, I've, whether it's a manager or, uh, or a competitor thinking that I, that I, I have a favorite or that I play favorites or that I have like, Oh, well they like, you know, this, this one, you, you assume Christian wants this person to win and that person to win. And are there certain times that, that, yeah, you know, certain competitors winning will be better for business of course but is it a matter of like that's what i've always told people since day one the integrity of the game is how you keep this thing alive forever because once you mess with the game that's it um so 
rooting for people. I root for people. I have an emotional attachment to people for sure. There's no doubt about it. Like I've, I've comforted people after a big win or big loss. I've gotten emotional. Like, so a story that, you know, my brother passed away in, in, in 2018. And while I was gone for his funeral, um, at the time, the Shire Wolves, which was a team compiled uh, of Rachel Cushing and Clark Wolf, who were the first two women to ever win championships in the Spread on that day. And it was a very historic moment that was happening. And Clark Wolf and I had been very close for a while. And Rachel, I knew from my time working at The Bachelor, which is a whole other story. Um, but they played and when they won the titles, they called me while I was in Florida and it was a very emotional attachment that we had because of what they did, what they were able to accomplish, how they do it, how they did it, the conversations leading up to it. I get very involved with the competitors uh, emotionally and, and they care. And going back to what I said earlier, when you care, people care, because if you don't know what it is, you go, Oh wait, it's movie trivia, but you understand when you see them. Cause at one point, it was just someone catching a ball and now it's baseball. It was just someone throwing a ball into a basket and now it's basketball. It was, it, it was that, but they cared. And there's an emotional attachment that happens with everybody. So when you see someone win a championship and they're throwing their arm back and they're screaming, Marisol has the belt over her shoulders and people are screaming, lady justice, lady justice and chanting in the crowd. That's because the audience cares, they care. And of course I get emotionally attached to that because they're helping me build this thing the same way. John Roca is like our first real big character that we had. He was the, the outlaw. He understood right away what I wanted to do with, with this thing. I knew John, I know John since the Florida state days and he would, put all the emotion into it, really care. And he cared so much. It made other people care so much. So there's a, when he beat Dan Merle, he's the first person to ever beat Dan Merle when he did it. And he was announced as a new champion. He screeched and he yelled out and he's like, yeah. And people in the crowd were like, yeah, this is awesome. They didn't know why, because they felt it was infectious and they saw it and he's slamming down the belt and he's got the hat and people are like, I want to do that. And they, and he inspired them. And it's like that inspirational thing of one person doing it. It's, it seems that's what I want to do. That's what inspired me. That's why I want to, you look at these new competitors and they're all inspired by some of the greats that have played the game. And we've only been doing it since 2014. This has been a pleasure. You are the Vince McMahon of movie trivia, the Dana White or the Vince McMahon, which whether you're a UFC fan or WWE fan, I'll let them decide. December 4th, the Schmodown Spectacular live in Los Angeles. Congrats on everything you have built, everything you are building, and I can't wait to see where it goes next. It's phenomenal, Christian Arloff. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure. Appreciate it. Same here, man. Congratulations again, December 4th. Everyone check it out. Thank you. All right, folks, that was Christian Harloff. Make sure to check out the movie trivia Schmodown and their spectacular live on December 4th. It is going to be an amazing event. If Christian didn't get you pumped for it, then I am trying to because I love this stuff. He just did one in New York and I was out of town or else I would have been there. It's just it, the atmosphere is awesome. So I can't trust it enough. Go get tickets for December 4th. That's it for another episode of Endless Hustle. We are back on Thursday with just an awesome episode, another triple header. We have Neil McDonough, Jenna Johnson, Shmerkovsky from Dancing with the Stars, and Jessica Collins from Acapulco. And of course, she's a huge soap opera star. And we got all into that, Young and the Restless. That was so cool. As someone who grew up on the Young and the Restless, I love hearing all the stories. 
In the meantime, subscribe, rate, show us the love on Twitter. We are at endless double underscore hustle on Instagram at endless hustle pod. Me personally, I'm at Arthur Cade on Twitter at it's me Arthur Cade on Instagram. Back on Thursday, endless hustlers. We'll see you then.